name and all the saints of God said, amen. Okay, saints, Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We've seen this last great battle that was there in Revelation 19. As we come here into chapter 20, we now understand that there are some judgments that are going to be taking place here. And the first judgment that's going to be found is the the judgment of Satan, as he is going to be judged in the first three verses. Then there's a judgment of the saints. And and not only are, are with the judgment that they have, that they will be those who will have judgment here on earth. And then, of course, there's this another rebellion to those who are there in the millennium as Satan will be released after a thousand years in verses um, 7 through 10. And then that rebellion will be judged. And then lastly, this great white throne judgment. So within this chapter, just keep in mind, there are four judgments. And so you have Satan, you have the saints, you have those that are there in the millennium who go through, and then you have, of course, this great white throne judgment. It begins in this, Revelation 20, the first three verses, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain was in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. We're looking here at an angel coming from heaven. He has the key to that bottomless pit. And he has this great chain in his hand. And we see five things that happen to this dragon, serpent, Satan. That initially this angel in verse 2 lays hold of that dragon. At the end of verse 2, he then binds him. In verse 3, he then is cast into this pit. Then he's shut up. And then a seal is set on him. And it's interesting that what we see here, and I want you to recognize that this angel here doesn't have a name. It's not like it's Michael. It's not like it's Jesus. It's not God. It's simply an angel. And to be honest with you, this passage, because this angel is not named, is actually very encouraging to me. Too often, I think we... we've been taught or we just presume that the real battle is between, you know, Satan and God and that Satan is God's equal. Keep in mind that Satan is not God's equal. We've talked about this before. He's sort of like a toddler who's, you know, throwing a tantrum. That's what he is. And a toddler isn't going to have authority over that kind of parent, over that creator. Um, It just doesn't. And so you have this angel, not Michael the archangel, not, you know, these great angels you don't have. It's just an angel. An angel comes and takes out Satan. 
An angel comes, and what we see is here is he comes and lays hold of the dragon. He binds him. He casts him into this pit. He shuts him up and sets a seal on him so that he can deceive the nations no more till these thousand years are up. I want you to see here that there is a great similarity to Satan at this point and what we see that he sought to do to Jesus Christ. Remember that it was a, satan, a satanic directive that you know Satan put in the heart of Judas. He wanted Christ to be crucified. And it's interesting that he, in a sense, through the Roman government, lays hold of Christ, crucifies him, and then he's bound. Jesus Christ was wrapped in these grave clothes, was just bound up in these grave clothes. And then he was cast into a pit. He was put into this tomb. He was just simply put into this pit, and then they shut him up. Then they rolled a stone in front of it, and then they put the seal on that stone. And here is where Satan thought, oh, this is my victory. <laughs> and yet, what is it? Well, hallelujah, because that, that death where Satan laid hold of Jesus, the binding him up, the grave clothes, the putting him there in that pit, the putting the, 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 the stone in front of that opening, and then sealing it with the seal could not keep Jesus in the pit. However, exactly what he sought to do with Jesus God just turns around and just does it to him. Be careful. What you sow, you shall reap. Now, although Satan's plot against Jesus had no power, what we see here is this, that God here is going to deal with Satan. Now, I want you to understand that what God is trying to do with Satan is it's not so much as a, as a punishment to say, this is your punishment for a thousand years. He's just holding him. He's on a holding pattern. He's just putting him on a timeout. Now, for Satan, the timeout happens to be for a thousand years, but this is what God does. So here, just, just this regular old angel lays hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. This angel now comes, and it doesn't even talk about a huge battle. He just simply binds him up for a thousand years. The question is, is what kind of chain, what kind of you know, thing can be created to hold Satan for a thousand years? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. There's a lot of people who are speculating that answer, but I don't know. But I do know this, that if there is something that needs to be made to bind Satan for a thousand years, God is the one who can do it. God is the one who can create anything. He created everything. And so to create this chain, he can do so, but he has this chain. He binds him now for a thousand years. He casts him into the bottomless pit. That same pit that we read about through which the demonic entities would come through, he casts them into that pit. He shuts them up and then he puts a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Now it's interesting that what God chooses to do when he puts Satan into this pit, I want you to see at the end of verse 2 because this is key, 
he bound him for a thousand years. And then in verse 3, he then set this seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, after that thousand years, he will be released for a little while. Verse 7 of Revelation 20 declares this, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. You have this term called a thousand years. Now this thousand years in the Latin, we call it the millennium. And so basically you have that milli, which is a thousand. You've heard of millimeters. That's a thousandth of a meter. So you have these milli, which means a thousand. And then you have that Latin word annum, which means year. We get our word like annual, annual, you know, those kind of things. Um, And so you have milli and annum. And so it's millennium. And it's interesting that this thousand-year millennium, as we're going to see, it's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ and that we will be reigning with him. Now, within this whole area of this reign of Christ, it happened around 300 A.D. that there were the beginnings of this movement where they said this reign of Christ was not an actual literal reign, but it was more of a spiritual reign. So if you've ever heard of that term amillennialism or amillennialism, it means there's no millennialism. There is no thousand-year reign. There's no physical thousand-year reign. It's a spiritual reign. And so what was happening is that spiritual reign, it was, um, they actually believed that it was happening then. They believed that millennium reign of Christ happening spiritually was already happening around 300 A.D. Well, here's the problem. That reign has continued now, you know, for over 1,700 years. Something's up. So we understand that 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 aspect couldn't be true, but every new generation says that there is this area where it's not a literal reign of Jesus Christ, but there is no millennium. And then there are those who then took that whole area of the amillennialism and made it into a postmillennialism. And what that is is where this millennium here, these thousand years take place before Jesus comes. And what happens is this, when the church is at its strongest point, the church is going to be literally for a thousand years beginning to work out all these things, bringing the world into this place of righteousness and thus ushering this beautiful area for Jesus Christ to come back. And it's interesting that isn't that sort of the way the world kind of thinks that this is how God works, that that first he has to clean us up and then he will come into us? That's not how he works. If you remember that whole area of communion that we have, what we have the bread and we have the cup. And the bread is amazing because the cup we know, the blood of Jesus Christ, washes us, cleanses us. And the bread is what? It's the body of Christ. And what's amazing is this, that God tells us through Paul and through Jesus to take of the bread and then take of the cup. 
He says, I want to come into you just as you are, and then when I'm in you, I'll cleanse you. But here it's this whole understanding within the post-millennialism is that the church is going to be for a thousand years really bringing society into this place of righteousness to usher Jesus Christ in. Well, I'll be honest with you. The church has failed miserably. So I, I don't think the church is even on year one trying to usher in this, this glorious kingdom for Jesus to come back in. So I simply believe the same way that the early disciples did. I believe that this millennial reign is Jesus Christ. When he comes back in chapter 19, then he's going to come um, and rule and reign in verse 18. So when you have this area of no millennialism, this amillennialism, there is no actual literal millennial um, thousand year reign. They simply believe it's all spiritual. But when you have this post millennial reign, what they're saying is this that chapter 19 comes after chapter 20. And I'd rather just take it right in this context. Jesus comes back in chapter 19, sets up the thousand year reign there in chapter 20. So I see it as this, this flow that was there. And I want to share with you there in verse 4. And it just kind of helps solidify what we're looking at because it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And notice what he says here now in verse 4. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So for those who are saying that Jesus isn't here, for yes, he is. Then, then I don't know. Do you just erase verse 4? Do you erase the last half of verse 4? So I just wanted to share with you, there are some other views that are out there, but none of those views line up with Scripture other than simply, here's a millennium, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning. Now, within this area of the millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign, there's going to be some changes that goes on. First and foremost is this, that Israel is going to be one of the key players. Israel is going to be restored. The temple is going to be restored. There's going to be um, people coming, and the, the sacrifices will be continuing. There's going to be an area where they will point back to Jesus Christ, I want to read to you just a couple of verses. The, the first one is kind of what the millennial will look like um, when Jesus comes back. That's found in Isaiah chapter 11, the first 10 verses. So let me read it to you, and then we're going to back up to Isaiah 2, and we're going to look at just how Israel fits into this whole thing. But in Isaiah chapter 11, the first 10 verses, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We talked about that before the seven spirits. In verse 3, and his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, 
but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now here, note what's happening here. At this point of verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 11, you see this attack that comes on, this battle of the Lord. And so when it makes this statement here, at the end of verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, that judgment, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. What are we looking at? Revelation 19, where Jesus comes back and with the sword of his mouth. And then it says this, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So, of course, he's called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, verse 6, notice what happens after this battle. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So within this millennial time, we understand that they're going to beat their you know, swords into plowshares. They're going to be a time of peace where we're going to see they're going to live exponentially. And there's going to be this wonderful peace where the wolf is going to be with the lamb. The leopard is going to lie down with the goat. Little kids will play with snakes. Nothing's going to you know, kill something else within this thousand-year reign. This is that year of the thousand year of just peace. Now, what's going to be Israel's place? If you back up to Isaiah chapter 2, I want to read the first five verses to you. It declares this in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall bear their swords, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Neither nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
So we see here this incredible time of peace. However, Jerusalem is exalted above all other nations. So Jerusalem is going to be prominent here. One other passage just to mark down, Ezekiel chapter 17. And in Ezekiel 17, I want to read to you just a couple of verses. Beginning in verse 22, I want to read through verse 24. Ezekiel 17, 22, thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. And I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. And I will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. So I'm going to take the Messiah and I'm going to put Messiah there in Jerusalem. And so on the high on the mountain height of Israel, verse 23, I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be majestic, be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort in the shadow of its branches they will dwell and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree dried up every green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken it and I've done it. So again, we see all these references point to the Messiah coming, the Messiah in this time. We see here there's going to be a time of peace where Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. There will be a mandated righteousness that takes place within this thousand-year millennium. But what happens is this. Before all this peace can come, before this time of righteousness comes, the angel has to do one thing. God doesn't just establish his kingdom, but first he takes Satan and he puts Satan in the pit. And it's interesting. Now, why does he do this? Well, in verse 3 is the key to Satan's warfare. In verse 3, it said, He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. It's important to understand that here, Satan's main strategy is deception. Just deception. And you have to understand that what deception is, is this. When we see this area of deception, let's, let's go down and look at verse 7 and 8 again. Now when the thousand years of Revelation 20, verse 7 and 8 have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations. His whole goal is deception. And as we know who Satan is, we know how Satan is. There's an area where when it comes to who Satan is and what Satan does, let me just give you this verse to jot down. John chapter 8, verse 44, where Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now keep in mind that although he lies, you know as well as I do that when you know something is a lie, it has absolutely no power over you. It just doesn't. But what happens is this. 
Although a lie itself has no power, when the lie is masked, and when that, that lie is, is all of a sudden, the, the, it's masked to look like a truth, now that lie can have power. Now that lie can sway you. And that's what it is. It's called deception. See, if it's just a blatant lie, you know it's a lie. But what Satan does is this, is he begins to just mask that lie in other things where you think, oh, well, maybe it's not a lie. Remember the very first thing that he'd said to, to the, the woman. And he says, oh, did God indeed say? Questioning God. Yes, he said. But yet you bring what? You bring doubt. You bring deception. You, you, you just want to just turn the truth around. And so we see here is when it comes to this area, when the lie is masked, all of a sudden, when the lie is masked with the truth, it can sway your heart. It can sway your mind. It can sway your life. And, and the danger now is when we believe those lies to be truth. So you have to understand that what Satan does is this. He deceives and there's one thing that's going to battle deception. And what is that? This book. The truth. This book is truth. And so we see here that, that what the Lord has spoken, this is truth. And we've talked about it before. The word of God in its context as a whole is truth. Everything else is suspect. If you can believe that, if you can receive that, the word of God itself as a whole in its context is true. Now keep in mind that you can take out a verse out of its context and out of the whole of the teaching and you can do what? You can make that into a lie. Because there's always a balance when it comes to the truth. What did Satan say to Jesus when he brought him to the pinnacle of the tower? Hey, just go ahead, throw yourself off. For it is written, oh, the angels will give themselves charge over you lest you dash your foot against stone. Using scripture. But what does Jesus say? But it is also written. Don't tempt the Lord your God. Don't, don't go ahead and do that. So all these people were saying, well, you know what? God is going to protect me. God's going to protect me. Well, don't tempt him. You can't make God do something. And I think it's important to realize here what this deception is. And so often, isn't that where we find that if we want to kind of skirt around an issue, what do we do? We do what is known as what? A half-truth or a little white lie. It wasn't a real lie. It's just a little tiny lie. No, there's either truth or there's not truth. But yet we can have an idea, and we do the same thing where we deceive. And when you begin to deceive, what happens is this, is if you're known to be a deceiver, eventually what happens is this, is that you will lose trust. You need to be honest. You need to be forthright. And, and the, the honesty you need to be is this, that, that it's the scripture as a whole that leads me, not just whatever I say. And that was something that I had to learn that I didn't learn it quite as well as a parent as I did as a grandparent. One of the things that I do with my grandchildren is this, is I always 
share the truth with them. I don't deceive them. I'm very open. I'm very honest about what I will do and what I won't do. Like with my kids, I would trick them. Oh, I won't tickle you. I won't tickle you. Oh, then I tickle them. Oh, well, what do they learn? They learn you can't trust what comes out of dad's mouth. My grandchildren are different. They know that every single thing, I will say, listen, I'm going to tickle you. Do you want me to tickle you with the right hand? Do you want me to tickle with the left hand? Do you want me to not tickle you at all? Or do you want me to choose what hand? And it depends on their mood. Sometimes they say, not at all. In other words, say, well, you choose. So is it the real one or is it the decoy? But they know I'm going to tickle them. And they told me I can choose. And now the game goes. But what happens is I've told them the rules. I've been very open and very honest. And there's no deception at all. Because if you're one that you say one thing and then you do something else, you're known as what? A deceiver and you can't be trusted. Well, no, now I really am telling the truth. Well, how do I know that now you really are? You either tell the truth or you don't tell the truth. Because if you have to say, well, now I swear on a stack of Bibles I'm telling the truth. Well, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't, you don't have to mess around with here. You've got to really believe me now because I'm going to t- put my hand on the Bible. Or I'm swearing in my mother's grave something that, that I could never lie when I say that. Well, to be honest, if you're a deceiver, you're a deceiver. How do I know when it's going to happen? But what Satan does is this. He masks lies. He puts a face on a lie that make it sound like a truth that you could, if you do this, you're going to find pleasure and nobody's ever going to know. <laughs> That's a lie. Have you ever heard that from Satan? Nobody's ever going to know. Do you realize that God is omniscient? Do you realize that God is everywhere present? How can you say no one's ever going to know? We're going to see at the end of this chapter that books are opened. And everything, the very thought and the intent of your heart is known to God. Nothing is masked to God. So when Satan says no one will know, keep in mind, they'll know. They'll know. And it's interesting that there are sometimes, if you've ever noticed how when you do something wrong, that sometimes you may not say, you know, be busted on, this is what I actually did wrong, but your countenance has fallen. Your countenance has changed. And they realize something's going on with you. You don't have the joy that you used to do. What's going on? And then you can either tell the truth or you can lie. And it's one of those things that this is Satan's, and I believe it's one of his greatest strategies that he has. Satan is a deceiver. But note this. This deceiver is going to be judged. And once he's judged, note this, he can deceive no one. Now, when he cannot deceive anyone, guess what begins to reign? Truth. Now, the heart is still going to want to do things, but as the judges come, as the saints who are going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, as they begin to dictate and mandate righteousness, there will be no deception. There's going to be, this is what you're thinking, this is what you were about to do, we're not going to go there. And so God is going to really rule and reign with this rod of iron within this thousand-year reign. So we had that age of innocence there at the time of Adam. We had the the age of the law there through the children of Israel. We're right now this age of grace through the church. But here there's going to be this rule of, of 
of really a rod of iron. You were being mandated what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And so I just wanted you to see that what God does before establishing his kingdom is this. He takes away the deceiver. He takes away deception. The biggest issue that we face as a church, that we face as a nation, is simply deception. Truths that are masked in, or lies that are masked as a truth. And so, you know, this whole thing within the last few years, they've been talking about how the many aspects of the media cannot be trusted because they choose which stories to say and they'll choose what stories not to say. And the way they choose the story, they'll say, well, we're going to put this bent to it, but we're not going to put this bent. We're going to tell you a truth here, but we're not going to tell you a truth there. And to be honest, there are all sides that do this. And I find it interesting that deception is one of those things that we have to watch out for. But the only way that you are going to know true deception is when you take the whole of this book in its context. And you take the passages in their context, take those passages in their context, in the context of the book as a whole. That's what gives us an understanding. So now that we see that Satan is judged, now we're going to see here that the saints are also going to be judged and they are going to, in the judgment that's given to them, they will be given judgment. Look at verse four through six. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So you have this group, those that were on the thrones, those who had been beheaded, and these are now living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest, verse 5, of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So you see it constantly talks about this literal reign, Christ being here for a thousand years, the saints now ruling with him for a thousand years. It talks about it over and over again in case maybe someone doesn't quite fully understand. Now, what we see is this. There's going to be two aspects. There's going to be some who are now, you know, into what is known here in verse 5 at the end, that first resurrection. And then there's going to be some who now come later on, and they're now resurrected at the end of all this because at the beginning of verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So you have this area where... There's this, what's known as a first resurrection. And the first resurrection, as we're going to see, that this is something that's caused a lot of issues with a lot of scholars. Commentators are trying to figure this out. And let me just try to make it easy for all of us. There is an understanding where some say 
that these, this resurrection comes all at once. In other words, you have all the resurrection of the good and all the resurrection of the bad, and it all takes place at one time, and there isn't like this period that goes through. So what, what in a sense they're saying is this. There's a point in time in which there's a resurrection of the good, the first resurrection, and there's another point in time in which you're going to be Others will be raised, and they'll be raised into the judgment. In other words, when we get to Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. And the way they do this is there's a passage in the Gospel of John, and I want to read to you in chapter 5. I'm going to read just a couple of verses to you. I'm going to start in verse 25, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 30. It declares this in John chapter 5, verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So he talks about there's going to be an hour. Those who are dead is going to hear and, and they're going to hear the voice of the Son of God and, and those who hear, who hear God's voice, they're going to live. For as the Father, verse 26, has committed life in himself, and he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel, verse 28 of John 5, at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. So he talks about this moment of time. There is an hour coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own but the will of the Father who sent me. So he's talking about there's going to be those who come forth who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, that hour comes where they will be raised. Then there's another one where all of a sudden those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So we see there's an hour of those who will do good, and then there's going to be this time of those who have done bad. I want to share with you that there's a term in this first resurrection that says this, the first resurrection is not necessarily a point in time, but a parade through time. Let me try to explain it to you. When people say that there's only going to be one moment where all of a sudden all the dead who were in Christ, they're going to be raised and be in Christ. All those who are not in Christ, there's going to be a point where all those will be raised to judgment. But if you say that there is no resurrection, in other words, as a parade, point by point by point, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be raised. Let me share with you two passages. The first is found in Matthew chapter 27. And what this does is it kind of puts a hole in those people who say that this hour, this moment, is, it has to be a specific point in time. Because in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 52 and 53, this is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to back up to verse 51 to keep it in context. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. 
Verse 52, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So if there's a point in time, how can these now escape that point in time? Do you follow me? And so if there's a point in time, then these guys here have to wait for the point in time. They wouldn't be able to come out. The other passage I want to give to you is actually found in um, let me get my, my process here right. Second Corinthians chapter five verse eight. And in Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse eight, Paul says this to the church in Corinth, we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. It's understood that we as believers, when we pass, we're absent from the body, we're going to be present with the Lord. There's an aspect that what we realize is that there are those who, when they receive Jesus Christ, the moment of their death, they now are ushered into the kingdom. So when we see here in Revelation 20, verse 4, this is where that complication comes in. That here they see these thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. So who are these that are already now in heaven? Who are these that are being spoken of? Well, those who are being spoken of, as we're going to see here, he said, I saw thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was committed to them and then the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now, we've already talked about this before. Remember back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, and around the throne, that's around the throne of God, was 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So you do have thrones that are already in heaven, and you have on those thrones 24 elders. So when you see the thrones and they who sat on them, there are some who say this is the church and all the church now has thrones I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if you want to be contextual, you know at least are the 24 thrones and 24 elders. But you also see then that the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. Now that we read about in Revelation 6 verses 9 through 11. It declared this when he opened the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with, a, cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So we do see that there is in Revelation verse four, chapter 4 and chapter 6 who we understand here in verse 4 of Revelation 20. Ju the thrones and they who sat on them, judgment was committed to them, and then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus 
and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what is this living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years? Those who are, as we'll see, that part of that first resurrection, those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of Old Testament passages, the first Old Testament passage I want to give to you is found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. Daniel 7, 27, just jot these down, don't turn there. I'm going to go through six of them just so you can get a good flow here. In Daniel 7, verse 27, it says this, Then the kingdoms and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion shall, dominion shall serve and obey him. And so we see that here there's this kingdom and dominion of, of the greatness of the kingdom of the whole earth, and it shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. So Daniel was the one who initially said, this is what's going to happen. We are going to be ruling and we are going to be reigning with him. Another passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Let me just read that to you. It begins this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Strike that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It declares, if we endure... We shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So this whole understanding of there's going to be ruling and reigning as we are with Christ. In Revelation 2 verse 26, it makes this statement, And he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. As he speaks to the church of Thyatira, he says you know, those exact words. In Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, we see here the same kind of truth. Now he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And in verse 9, they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And notice what they sing here in verse 10 of Revelation 5. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So those who have been redeemed, those who are there, we see that these are the ones that are going to be ruling with Christ. We've also read in, in verse 6 of Revelation 20 already, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. The second death we'll be reading about when we get to verse 11. But the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So it's very clear that what we begin to see is there is this first resurrection. The first resurrection are those who have believed in Jesus Christ 
And I do believe that if you think of it this way, it's more of a parade through time than a point of time. It will be helpful. Um, but he talks about there's this group that's going to come in the, those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And there's also going to be those who did not put their faith. And as they're now raised at the beginning of verse 5, and the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So that whole point of an hour has confused many. And to be honest with you, the way that it's written in this context makes it so it's unclear. But when you look to the whole of Scripture, and that's why you just don't take one little verse, but you take how does that verse fit in the context? We understand there's the ones who are believed in Christ, the ones who didn't. That's the context. But when you take a look at the whole of Scripture, there are already some who are resurrected there in Matthew 27, of course, in 1 Corinthians um, or 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he says, to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord. That as soon as we're there, that we are now with Christ. So as we see here, the whole of Scripture begins to direct our understanding of that. And that's what we call is the first resurrection. But those who did not live again until the thousand years, once we get to verse 11, they are the ones that we see um, they're not part of that first resurrection. So in verse 6, once again, as we continue through, blessed and holy is the part in the first, is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. So keep in mind that I believe that, that I will be part of that group that will be ruling and reigning. We will be eternal. We have been raptured already prior to this great tribulation. And when we come back, eventually what happens is that those who are actually make it through the millennial or through the tribulational period, they will be ushering into and starting this millennial period. And of course, they will live extremely long lives and the earth's population is going to just build again one more time. But now in verse 7, it makes this statement. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog should gather together to battle those whose number is as the sand of the sea. So we understand here that the same way in Ezekiel 38 and 39 where Gog and Magog come against the Holy Land, they were a precursor. Here you see that, that that was the future or that, that near sense of prophecy. Now you have this future sense of prophecy where once again at the end of millennial, Satan is released from his prison. He was on a timeout for a thousand years. And now he goes out and what does he do? He deceives. This is his main tactic. He deceives the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose numbers as the sand of the seas. So these that have been living under a mandatory righteousness for over a thousand years. Now understand, there have been children born and children born and children born and people living this long. They're, they're, they're living, they're not dying through this millennial period. And you have new generation after new generation after new generation. So the earth right now, the population is as the sand of the sea. And they are now gathered together to go against God, as Satan has deceived them one more time. Well, verse 9, they went up 
on the breadth of the earth surrounded the camp of the saints. So they're surrounding here Jerusalem. They're surrounding here the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Fire came down out of heaven, from God out of heaven, and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As we see here, they're all gathered around, and again, it's a very anticlimaxial battle. Um, they're gathered around, fire comes from God, and he simply devours them. So everyone who was gathered together who had been deceived by Satan, they now are dead. So the devil who had come out, who deceived them, as we learned earlier, that this is that one who is the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil and Satan. As the devil who deceived him, now he's now taken and he's now cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is not here Hades. This is not that bottomless pit. This is the eternal dwelling place, the torment. And this is where the, the lake of fire is. And so this is designed and made for Satan, for the beast and the false prophet. It was not designed or made for man. However, this is that final judgment of all places. So when we get to verse 11, what happens is, remember how Jesus had told that beautiful situation of Lazarus and this rich man. And eventually Lazarus dies and so does the rich man. And Lazarus now comforted into a place called Abraham's bosom. The rich man was there through a gulf, was now tormented. We do understand that when Jesus was crucified, when he was in the grave, he went down and he led captivity captive. He went and preached to those souls that were there in that place of Abraham's bosom. They who believed in him by faith were now taken out of that. The only thing that's left is that chasm and torture on the other side. Well, at this point, those saints who are in that waiting period, who are in that place of torture, they will now be raised up they will now come before this great white throne judgment. All who are there, all who are awaiting, verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is now this great white throne judgment. This isn't the Bema seat where the Christians are going to be judged. This here is the great white throne. This is where, as we're going to see here, there's no one who can hide from God. It makes this statement, him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. So if you were thinking, I'm going to hide here, I'm going to hide here, everything is going to move. You're going to be open, you're going to be bare, and you're going to be found. And I saw, verse 12, the dead, small and great, standing before God. And here, as they're standing before the Lord, yes, they're standing now, but you have to understand that they are going to bow the knee. They are going to confess. But they're standing now before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, called, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according by their works, the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. 
and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So as these people are now ushered out of that place, Hades, that place of, of within the, the earth, that there is a place of torment, all of a sudden they now come before this great white throne and books are opened. And you, you have a choice, and we've talked about this before, you can choose to let Jesus pay for your sin, or you can choose to do it yourself. And if you choose to let Jesus and his blood cover you, then you will not be covered by your own blood. And we see here that if you are in that book of life, the Lamb's book of life, then nothing that is there in those other books do you owe anything to. It's all paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid by the blood of the Lamb. However, if you're not in that book of life, now you're going to be judged according to the work of all these other books by the things that were written in the book. And so you're judged now according to their works. Now keep in mind that you and I were judged according to what? Christ's work. We're all judged according to a work. <laughs> you and I, we're judged according to Christ. They are judged according to their own. And so that work of Christ takes our sin, gives us his righteousness. That's where we are. And so keep in mind that as we see this mindset, verse 13 says, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. The ground in the sea. No matter what, there are people who've been buried at sea. God's going to take all of their little molecules and he's going to bring them all together and he's going to set them before him. Their, their souls, the spirit of them, they're now in that place of torment. And within that, they have this type of body where they're able to experience, they're able to talk, they're able to experience pain and torture. And even so, that rich man says, remember, have Lazarus go and just, just dip his finger and, and touch my tongue, cool it. You know, just, just bring it some comfort. We understand that it's not their physical body, but a type of body that they will have. Here, they're going to be reunited with their actual body, and that's, God's going to form that for an eternal one. And so we see here that there is no one that's going to hide. No body that has ever died that rejected Christ. It isn't going to come to this place before the Lord. So as we see this, here, the judgment of God upon those who had rejected Christ. And in verse 10, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Now this death and Hades, keep in mind they are, you know, personal pronouns. They're, they're not just death and Hades. They're, they're physical entities. Who they are, how they are. Scholars try to determine who they are and to be honest, there isn't any real good scripture to point out how these are personified. It could just be this personification. I don't believe it. I believe there's an actual entity behind these two because death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. So who they are, how they are, keep in mind the only context is here as they're personified. Everyone else who's trying to tell you something is trying to sell you something. 
But as they're cast into it, it says this is the second death. So we who have received Jesus Christ, we will have a physical death, but never have a spiritual death of being having to be separated from God. These here who've had the spirit or the physical death, they now come and they get this second death. They're now eternally separated from God. They're now cast into that lake of fire. Now, this is a place that was made for the devil, was made for the beast, was made for the false prophet. It was not made for man. However, man can choose to go there. But what God wants is this. He wants our hearts to be surrendered. And I want you to now, just as we're closing, let me bring it back here to that portion of verses 5 through 6. Because through this area of the millennium, there is this reign of righteousness. It's with a rod of iron. And I want to share something because so often we as Christians think if we pass enough laws that we will get people to walk and become Christians. Well, I'll tell you what, these laws were passed because Jesus spoke them. They were now mandated for a thousand years. Where was the heart of men? It did not change the heart of these men. Their actions were one thing, their hearts are something else. And so keep in mind that as we see here that working, that if we think by passing laws that that will make men righteous? No, it'll make their, their works appear righteous, but it will not make them righteous. There's one thing that makes a man righteous, and this is honestly is us knowing that we've sinned. Me knowing that I've broken the Lord's laws again and again and again. And the only way that I could be made right was when those things, the handwriting of the requirement that was against me, was taken out of the way and Jesus nailed it to the cross. When he took my sin upon him and paid it in full, that's the only thing. And then I get the righteousness of Christ. It isn't anything that I do or I dream up or I make up. It's imparted to me. And as he comes in me, then what? Then he begins the cleansing process. So all of us who think if we could mandate laws, then all of a sudden the world would become Christian. Wrong. They'll, they'll do things on the outside, but what happens is on the inside, I still don't want to do it. How many times does Jesus say, listen, you've heard it said, if you murder, and you say, well, I've never murdered. Yeah, but if you're angry, what's, about, what's on the inside? You've heard it said if you commit adultery. I've never committed adultery. But what have you thought on the inside? And so it's not the outer area that's righteous. It's what? When he comes in and he changes our hearts, he changes our thinking, he changes who we are, and he begins the process called sanctification. This is the key, and I think it's so important that he's showing here that if we mandate righteousness for a thousand years and don't allow sin it's not going to make the world righteous because Satan comes and he does this one thing. He deceives. He deceives and immediately there's all these people that are gathered together like the sand of the sea, a multitude coming against God, coming against the saints. Do they actually think that they could win? But that's what happens when time goes by. A thousand years have already come from that time where Jesus came down. And they think, we can take him. We can take him. Oh, no, you're not. Fire comes down from God, devours them. 
And so it's just, a, I think, a great word when it comes to judgment. But the beautiful thing is, saints, is that you and I, we've already been judged righteous because of what Christ has done. And then we become judges. We become priests and judges here to rule and reign with Christ during this literal thousand-year reign that we will be with him. And that's where at the end of verse 6, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Those who are on the thrones, those who have been beheaded, and of course we who are the bride of Christ, that we are those who come back with him in heaven. And of course, as we come in these robes that we talked about last week, we're also ruling and reigning with him. So um, with that, I think it's a, a great portion for us to declare judgment. Know this, Satan gets his. He just does. But you have to understand that, that he isn't the tough guy that, that we think is. I, mean, I don't want to mess with him. And, and I think it's important that, have you ever heard someone pray? They say, you know, we, Lord, we bind Satan. We bind him. Well, your prayers are ineffective because there's only one binding of Satan that's actually going to happen. And that's where the angel comes and he binds him. Now we can ask for a hedge. We can ask for those things. But the, the binding comes here. And when he's bound, he's bound for a thousand years. And and I'll tell you what, then when he's released, it takes him a moment to deceive, but then he's judged eternally. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for your heart. We thank you for how you speak and you open up our understanding to these truths. Thank you, Lord, so much for this promise that for a thousand years we'll be ruling and reigning with you. I cannot wait. Whatever you have in store for us, Lord, we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Lord, that in us we won't struggle with sin. We won't be able to be deceived because we'll be yours. We'll, we'll have these, these new bodies. We are part of that first resurrection. But, Father, help us now, right now, because I do believe that many of us are gullible to the deceptions of Satan of all of his lies that he wraps in, in, in masquerades as a truth. And yet we know they're not. So bring us to your word, bring us to your light, bring us to your truth so that we can walk in that and not be deceived. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen.